John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Our text today is going to be found in verses 14 to 34. The first few weeks that we spent in the Gospel of John, we, we took time to really develop a foundation theologically as to the person and work of Jesus Christ as the Logos, the, the great word and expression of God. That's what Jesus is, the Logos. And uh, we're still moving on through chapter 1. Uh, it's a very long chapter as it is, but very essential to our understanding of all the rest of the chapter itself. Last week we ended with verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we commented on this last week, but we're going to begin there again and make a few more comments to expand our understanding of this particular verse. So let's start with that verse today in our text. And the Word was made flesh. May I, may I just make this, this statement that literally and, and, and more proper is... And the Word became flesh. And I'll explain that in a moment. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bear witness of Him. Now this John is John the baptizer, not John the apostle. John the apostle is actually recording this of John the baptizer. John bear witness of Him and cried, saying, This was He of whom I spake, He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, in the very heart of the Father, he has declared him. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for bringing us together once again today. Thank you, Lord, for the blessings of life and breath, the blessings of godliness and the richness of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We ask, Father God, that you would pour out your spirit upon us, give us wisdom and grace as we learn more and more about our Lord and Savior. Continue, Lord God, to fill us with your grace, for indeed we live grace upon grace, and we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And so, the invisible one became the visible, tangible, touchable one. The transcendent one, in other words, the one who was above all of his creation. Above all things, the transcendent one became imminent, which means he became forthcoming and approachable. The one who had seemed so far off had drawn near. That which was beyond reach of the human mind became that which could be bound within the realm of human life. He became what he had not been previously. He did not cease to be God, but became man. And not only did he become man, he chose to dwell, literally tabernacle among us. In other words, he pitched his tent among us. That's what Jesus Christ came to do. That's what Jesus Christ did. And I emphasize the word became because this more accurately describes the logos here in verse 14. You know, as we are told in verse 3, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Well, he made, but he was never made. Yet he became. That is why it is so much more correct to understand that here at the beginning of verse 14 that it says, And the Word became flesh. Because in conjunction with verse 1, He was one with the Father from all eternity. Verse 1, of course. In the beginning 
was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was one with the Father from all eternity, but He took upon Himself our humanity, body, soul, and spirit. The only difference is, our spirits were dead. His was very much alive. And He became a man, and yet He was God, and dwelt among us. All of this we have covered in the last few weeks of our of our uh, initial studies in the, in the Gospel of John. But John the Apostle was one who lived with Jesus for a time. He walked with Jesus for a time. He prayed with Jesus for a time. He saw in his holy life that glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is how John describes it, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, what John was saying was, Jesus was not only like the kavod, glory of God. The kavod is the Hebrew word for glory. Some people use the word shekinah or shekinah, glory of God. Another Hebrew word. But biblically is kavod. He, he not only was like the kavod, he was the kavod. He was the glory of God, you see. That's what we need to understand here. Jesus was the glory of God. That glory refers to the bright cloud that, that God used to guide Israel out of Egypt and that rested on the tabernacle and above the mercy seat in the most high place. And John says, we beheld the glory of God dwelling among us. We beheld it. In other words, when we saw Jesus, we took hold of him with our eyes. We could see him. But more than that, we could touch Him. We could speak to Him, and He would speak back. We could eat with Him. And even one day after His death and resurrection, He fed His disciples by the Sea of Galilee. He would one day prompt His disciple Thomas to put His hand inside the scars of His body. We beheld the glory, the kavod of God. In that picture, Jesus was the embodiment of grace and truth. He was the embodiment of grace and truth. The whole fruit of God's purposes of love towards sinners of mankind, which until now existed only in promise and the fulfillment at length of that promise in Christ. In one great word, these were the sure mercies of David. Grace and truth. The sure mercies of David. Isaiah 55 verse 3. Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Even the sure mercies of David. Please remember that the grace of God... That grace alone, the word itself, means the undeserved favor of God. This is what He came to give us. And to give it to us in fullness. Not just grace, not just undeserved favor, but truth. And what is it that Jesus will say in John 14 verse 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the sure mercies of David... In, encapsulated are, is the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. We see it even more in Isaiah 16 verse 5 because it says here, And in mercy shall the throne be established and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hasting righteousness. The importance of, of never separating the grace of God with the truth of God. All of that again encapsulated in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And John the Apostle now mentions again John the Baptizer and the testimony this cousin of Jesus gave of the Messiah, which also provides for us another proof of the incarnation of Jesus taking upon himself flesh. Let's go back and read some of our texts here in verses 15 through 18. For it says here, John, bear witness of him. In other words, John the Baptizer bore witness of Jesus. 
saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. I want you to notice how many times John will say this little phrase, He was preferred before me, for he was before me. First here in verse 15. And then in verse 16. And of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace. How much of Jesus Christ did you receive when you came to Christ? Think about that question. Did you not receive all of him? That's the fullness of Jesus Christ. Of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace. I'll explain that in a moment. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. But please understand this. The law was given, it says here the law was given by Moses. That doesn't mean that Moses wrote out the law himself. If you remember, Moses received the law from God and it was the very hand of God that wrote the, 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 the laws of God on, on stone tablets. Signifying the, the, the necessity to see how strong the word of God in the sense of the law was to God. His law was written in stone. But grace and truth and the understanding of the law and the fulfillment of the law came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. And that is, of course, true. None of us could have been able to see God at any time in the sense that if we were to see God, we'd just be totally disintegrated. Because of the glory of God. But... John says, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, in the very heart of the Father, the very connection of Father and Son. The Son, the only begotten Son, has declared Him. He has expressed Him. If you see me, Jesus will say, you have seen the Father. So Jesus was in fact... Born three to six months after John, John the baptizer, they were cousins. But John delighted to give honor, as every real servant of Christ does, to the Lord Jesus himself. That is something that we need to take to heart. Anytime we want to talk about Jesus to anyone, we want them to see Jesus. We don't want them to see us. We don't want to point to us about anything. I mean, we can give our testimony, but our testimony will always hinge around what Christ has done for us. It saddens my heart sometimes when I watch some people on TV, preachers and and whatnot, that put so much attention upon themselves. They say that they're putting, you know, they're pointing to Jesus. They're they're, They're pointing to themselves. John never pointed to himself. He always pointed to Jesus. The apostles, when it came down to it, after, after the resurrection and the ascension of, of Jesus, when they spoke of Jesus, they pointed to Jesus, not to themselves. That's what we must do. Give honor and glory completely and totally to Jesus. John would retreat to the background so that the Lord would emerge large before the vision of the people to occupy the attention of every soul. John knew, and we'll see later, John knew that he didn't come to save anybody. But he came to point to the one who could and would save most, if not all, who would believe in him. Certainly he would save all who would believe in him. But he came so that all could see him and have that opportunity. And then John made this tremendously significant statement. He said, he is preferred before me, for he was before me. And this statement implies the pre-existence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, to go hand in hand with the, the theology of the first few verses of chapter 1, we see the need to see the pre-existence of Jesus before all creation. John's knowledge, then, of the scriptures prophesying the coming of Messiah are evident. He knew the word of God. I mean, here's John the Baptist, uh, or John the Baptizer. I don't want to call him the Baptist because everybody's going to think he's Southern Baptist or maybe he's some other denomination, but... But as the baptizer, you know, he, he spent most of his time, we don't know much about his, about his life other than the fact that he comes out of the wilderness experience. He comes out dressed like, I mean, just dressed totally different than everybody else. We're told, you know, that he wore camel skin and leather and then, you know, he kind of 
probably had a nice little odor to him, you know, and whatnot, uh, from those animal skins and whatnot. But, but he ate some funny food and, and what, and he, and he kind of did a lot of stuff that some of the prophets were known for. But he knew the word of God. He spent time with God. God prepared him for this work. In fact, what we're going to find out is that it was God the Father who sent this John to be the voice crying out in the wilderness. So John knew the word of God in Micah 5 verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, thou, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. He knew that Jesus did not have a, a, a beginning other than the fact that in his bodily form he did. But the person of Jesus was eternal. In verse 4, he understood his position. He shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. John knew the word of God. This is why we teach the word of God from Genesis to Revelation, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because it is so important for us not only to know about God, but to know him personally. And then for John to say he was before me meant that Jesus always existed. He was, he was the first. He was the very cause of, of John's existence. And John declared that Jesus was first in importance as well. His superiority being in person were first above all. His very name is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. No one else can have those names except Jesus. And still another proof of the incarnation is the fullness and grace of Christ which was given to us. And that is what John has told us, that we have the fullness given to us. The fullness of God given to us in Christ. And we can now testify of this. John is testifying. Now we can testify. Why? Because we have the fullness of God. The word fullness means that which fills the sum total, the totality. It is the sum total of all that is in God. As Paul would tell us in Colossians 1 verse 19 when he says, For it pleased the Father that in Him, speaking of Jesus, should all fullness dwell. In Him shall all fullness dwell. Keep your finger here in Colossians. And of that fullness, John says, we've received grace for grace. Now that's an interesting phrase, grace for grace, because you see, what it literally means is grace upon grace, but even more literally, it means grace instead of grace. We have grace that comes, and then there's a more, there's more grace that comes. Instead of the grace that we had before, we get new grace and more grace. As a matter of fact, in the book of Lamentations, we're told that God's mercies are new every morning. Great! is His faithfulness. Great is His faithfulness in giving us everything we need for life and godliness through Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Every day as believers, He gives it to us continually and fully. God's grace to His people is never exhausted. In other words, it is never spent and it is never drained. You go, you, you know, you, 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 how many of you ever been to one of those, those all-you-can-eat buffets? You, you think you can, you know, you can go without exhausting yourself. Some guys fill one plate up so much they can't get to plate number two, but they try. But at some point, they get, they get drained and exhausted. And then, not only that, but the owners will come and say, you can eat no more. You eat too much. It's not from experience I'm telling you this. Just letting you know. But God's grace, God's grace to His people is never exhausted. It is continuous. It is uninterrupted. And it is without limit. It is all the abundance of God through Christ given to us. Now to be clear, His wisdom 
His righteousness, His sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. That's part of the fullness of His grace given to us. His wisdom. Don't we need wisdom every day? Aren't we told in the book of James chapter 1 verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. For He will give to you without reproach what you need as far as wisdom is concerned. But in Christ we have the, we're full of wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. But there's more. We're told that His love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance, self-control, those are things given to us in the fullness of His grace. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But there's more. His Word, the Word of God tells us that we're complete in Him. If we received Christ, let me tell you this now, if we receive Christ, we receive the fullness of Christ. We didn't get this on a layaway plan. You know, I'll put a little down here and I'll get a little bit here. Maybe next month we get a little bit there. But eventually, sometime I'll get the fullness. No, you have the fullness now. That's what a lot of us as believers don't understand. We have the fullness of Christ. We are complete in Him. Batteries included. The Holy Spirit. We are complete in Him. Colossians, if you're still there, go to chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. For in Him, speaking of Jesus Christ, in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What is the Godhead? Godhead is the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The fullness of the Godhead bodily is all in Christ. Do you have Jesus in your life? You have the fullness of God. And then in verse 10 it says, And you are complete in Him, which is the head of all principality and power. You're not only complete in Him, you're complete in the One who created all things and is sovereign over all things and over all creatures and over all principalities, powers that exist. You're complete in Him. You should be rejoicing that you're complete in Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right. I've got to wake you up. I know it's tough. One, how we lost an hour of sleep last night. But you're trying to make it up here. Don't. All right. In verse 17 of our text, John states that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Folks, here is a new and different order. Moses gave the law, but what did the law reveal? The law revealed sin. And the law, in that revealing, condemns. The law is perfect, isn't it? Just read Psalm 19. The law is perfect and holy. But its main purpose is to reveal sin and condemn that sin. Jesus Christ, in contrast, reveals the grace and the truth that redeems. You see what a difference. You see how necessary both are. We cannot become believers in Jesus Christ if we don't realize that we were sinners, that we are, that we are sinners and that we, you know, we've, we've offended a holy God and we need his mercy. And so we come to Christ and we come to the cross and the cross tells us that he died to, for, for everyone who believes. Then we realize the preciousness of grace and truth. The fullness of God is grace and truth does not come. And listen carefully. It doesn't come by being as good as we can be. It doesn't come by working to please God as much as we can. It doesn't come by keeping the rules and the commandments of the law. No man can keep the law to any degree of perfection. Right? No man can keep the law to any degree of perfection. Some have tried. And where they've tried in some areas, they failed in others. And then they go back to the others and they fail in others. And then they find out they can't keep the whole law. But Jesus, and by the way, understand this, Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. 
And then he explained the law in such a way that we can, through Christ, fulfill the whole law. Because Jesus said, the first and great commandment is what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said, the second is like it. What is it? Love your neighbor as yourself. In these two commandments hang the whole of the law and the prophets. And therefore, if Jesus fulfilled the whole law in his coming and in his sacrifice and in his death and in his resurrection, then we can trust Christ who completes us to live by grace, but never to offend the law. Does that not encourage your heart? Okay, we're still sleepy. All right. And so grace is what? Oh, well, let's go for God so loved the world, John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever works really hard every day to try to please God. Oh God, you're so rough. You're so mean. You're cruel. I'm going to try to make you happy. I'm going to try to do this. Is that what it says? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever takes a nice little lady across the street, you know, and crosses the street so she doesn't get run over by a greyhound. Got to please God, right? You know what pleases God? Faith. Trust. And therefore, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him, trusts in Him with all of their heart, trusts and places their whole weight of trust upon the Lord, should not perish but have everlasting life. What a difference. That makes. That is grace. That is God's undeserved favor toward us. And it is the Father's only begotten Son who alone has seen the Father and has declared Him. Jesus has explained God. He has made Him known. Jesus has drawn Him out and expounded Him. Yes, He has expounded Him like a like a teacher expounds and exegetes a passage and says, this is what it means. This is who God is. You see me, you see him. Isn't it amazing that the divine sculptor became human clay so that we could see him. And we don't have to wonder about God's nature and personality. Jesus declared those with his teaching and his life. He declared the nature of God. He declared the personality of God by his very life and his teaching, as we shall see through the Gospel of John. And so John has been presented to us by John the Apostle at the onset of this Gospel as none other than eternal creator, source of life, God's manifested glory, and the unique expression of God. So to some extent, we we come to a certain conclusion of our theological study of the person of Jesus. Now we move on into the baptizer's testimony of Jesus. And this will take this week and next week because we have the table of communion today. But uh, let's read on through uh, verse 28. And this is the record of John. It says in verse 19. And this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? Now we need to understand that uh, the Pharisees of the time of Jesus... They were, at, at that time, around 6,000 men who, as Pharisees, they were a sect of Judaism that really believed the, the law. They, they really believed the word of God, uh, what they had at that time. They believed the, the law and the prophets, the Tanakh, uh, uh, the Torah, and all of the other books of the scriptures. They believed them. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in all of these things that the, that the Sadducees did not believe. They believed these things for many years. But in the time of Jesus, they started really believing more in just keeping the law and, and, and being nitpicky about the law than they were in, in realizing, you know, that the Messiah was actually going to be coming into their midst. 
And so now there's this man in his, in his camel skin and leather and all kinds of stuff, and he's preaching and baptizing people, and they've got questions for him because they want to know who sent him. So they ask John, the baptizer, who are you? And he confessed. In other words, okay, he told him, and, and he didn't deny anything. In other words, he didn't hold anything back from their questions. He says, I'm not the Christ. If you really want to know, that's not who I am. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. And they asked him, well, what then? Are, are, are thou Elias? Elias, of course, is Elijah the prophet. Are you Elijah? Elijah plays a, a major role at, at, at the, really the second coming of, of the Lord. Art thou Elias? And he said, I'm not. I, I'm not that prophet. Art thou that prophet? Uh, and, and now the next question, art thou that prophet? That is referring to the prophet that is mentioned in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18. Uh, verse 18, this is a prophet that actually points to Jesus Christ and the prophet role of Christ. Uh, and he says, no, I'm not, I'm not that prophet. And then, and then they said uh, unto him, well, who art thou that we may give an answer to them that sent us? And of course, you know, John is not in the area of Jerusalem. He's somewhere along the Jordan River baptizing people. But these uh, uh, scribes and Pharisees, you know, are, are there because the high priest and others had heard about what was going on so they sent him and so who are you that we may give an answer to them that sent us what sayest thou of thyself tell us about yourself and he said I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness as soon as he says that he has just identified, identified himself as the, prop, the prophet who is to prepare the way for the Messiah Isaiah 40 he says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Esaias. And that, of course, is the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest then, uh, thou then, if thou be not the, that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? Why are you baptizing? And John answered and said, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom you know not. By the way, if you take notes and you mark up your Bibles a little bit, uh, you want to highlight the word stand or standeth. And I'll tell you why in a moment. But there standeth one among you whom you know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me whose shoes latch it, I am not worthy to unloose. Two things. He says that phrase again. He is preferred before me, whose, uh, whose shoe latch it, I am not worthy to loose. Now underline shoes latch it. Underline shoe. Standeth and shoe, or shoes latch it. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing, which means, and in some of your translations it says Bethany, that is not the same Bethany of, of uh, the little city right outside of Jerusalem where, where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. Uh, the, uh, this is another, uh, another little town probably north of, of Jerusalem where, where John was baptizing between Jerusalem and, uh, and the Sea of Galilee. And he was doing it on the other side, which means he was on the east side of the Jordan, not the west side of the Jordan. Uh, so that's that verse. So generally speaking, we see a threefold purpose then for John's testimony, the testimony of John the baptizer. First purpose is to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 40 verse 3. Let's look at Isaiah 40 verse 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The very words that John tells these people who he was. He says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet of, of, Deut of Deuteronomy. Um, I am this voice. I'm the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness. But look on verses 4 and 5. It says, Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. 
And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And I've included this particular verse because I want you to see the context in which we have already seen that Jesus has been described as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth in the prophecy of Isaiah. That's the first purpose. It was to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 40. The second purpose of John's testimony was to call people to repentance. We see that in all the Gospels. John came to call people to repentance. The third reason for his testimony was to draw people's attention toward Jesus. So again, taking people's eyes off of him, he puts them onto Jesus Christ. Now one thing that John explained to his investigators was simply that he was the lamp, but not the light. You all understand that? John was the lamp, not the light. He was the wick, but not the flame. In other words, it's the glow of the bulb that lights a room, not the shine of the brass on the lamp. Too, um, too often we're worried about what the lamp looks like. And we polish it up, and we clean it off, and you know. No, no, no. The light is what's important. Jesus was the light. And John did not want to talk about himself. Again, the lamp is only there to allow the light to shine. John didn't want to talk about himself. Yes, he had an Elijah-type ministry. Yes, he may have looked and dressed like Elijah. But he sought to turn people back to God as Elijah did in his day. And even Malachi predicted that Elijah would return before Messiah's coming. Look at Malachi 4 verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The only problem here is that Elijah will be involved in the coming of the Lord, but that is the coming of the dreadful day of the Lord. This isn't the dreadful day of the Lord, is it? This is the day of Jesus Christ coming. And so an Elijah-like prophet is, uh, you know, being used by God to point to, to Jesus Christ. Elijah will come. I mean, let's face it. Uh, Jesus already met with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, didn't he? And what we read in the book of, uh, book of Revelation, when it talks about the, the two witnesses, one is consider, considered to be Elijah. And, and, uh, and, and that, you know, in, in the days of the tribulation period. So that will certainly fulfill this particular prophecy. And those who inquired, they inquired if, 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 uh, if John was a prophet of Deuteronomy 18. Again, it actually points to Messiah. So John emphatically stated that he was neither. And what John did declare was that he was the voice, not the word. He was the voice. Better than any person on that show the voice. He was the voice, but not the word, like the difference between the singer's voice and the song lyrics. Why did he have to make straight the way? What does that mean for, for this particular prophet? Because John the Baptist or the baptizer was a prophet. In fact, Jesus will tell us that he was the greatest prophet. Well, the imagery was taken from the days of Isaiah 700 years earlier. When there was no paved roads, there, there were no paved roads, only tracks across fields. And if the king were to travel, the road needed to be smoothed out so that the royal chariot might not find the traveling unduly rough nor swamped in the mire. So John was paving the path of Messiah. He was there to pave the road. And then John used this word, wilderness. It comes actually from Isaiah 40. A voice crying out in the wilderness. But the wilderness is used by John as a metaphor to describe Israel's spiritual condition at that time the spiritual condition of the people at the time of Jesus coming at the time of John the Baptist yes there were Pharisees who at one time almost 200 years before this uh, were very strict in the word of God but they truly believed in God now they were so caught up with, with keeping the law you know Straining at the gnat, as it were, not letting even a bug get in between their teeth because then they, you know, they make things unclean, you know, if they, you know, it was just, just crazy. And they couldn't see the forest for the trees. And they couldn't really see Jesus, the Messiah. 
So at that time, this here was a nation. Israel wasn't really Israel in a sense because the Roman Empire was in control. And they were allowed to have their religion, but it was all under control. Even the high priest, as, as, uh, as Rich Freeman had, had told us, were, were under the, the control of, of, of the Roman Empire and chosen by the Romans. So as a nation, spiritually, they were barren, they were dry, and they were desolate empty and so this highway of God was to be prepared the highway of heaven in essence is is paved over prepared hearts John came to prepare those hearts how did he do it? Well, the first thing is this preaching, just like Jesus did at one time. They both preached repentance. They both said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Turn away from your sins. Come back to God. When repentance begins to take place in a person's life and heart, it has softened now the heart. And that's the second step, the softening of the heart. The children of Israel were very hard. No matter what they would say, oh, we're not under the Romans. They were under the Romans. They were in subjection to Rome. And even though Rome allowed them their opportunity to, to worship, they didn't worship the way they really wanted to. So it all became show more than anything else. Their hearts were hard. When Jesus came. But the prepared heart. Is a repentant heart. And it's a softened heart. Which leads to a third. Aspect. And that is. A heart that is fertile. That when the, when the hard heart is broken up. And watered down. And softened. Then the, the, then the, 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 the soil is, 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 is ready that if anything is planted, it's going to grow and it's going to bear fruit. And that's what needs to take place in our hearts. We had to come to Christ with a repentant heart. And then we had to be made soft. The hardness of the law brought us to Jesus Christ. And it is Christ who gave us hearts of flesh that are alive and beat with his love and grace. And then Jesus said, I want you to bear fruit. So our hearts have to be fertile and ready to grow and bear fruit. The rough terrain of our own hearts needed to be smoothed before the Lord could come near. And hence what we see in Isaiah 40 verses 3 and 4. Again, I just uh, hope you stayed there. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way, the way, the road, the, the path of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Make straight that road. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain will and hill shall be made low. You know, the valleys are down here, the mountains are up here, and every, you know, when you traveled in those days, you were going up and down. Now, listen, we've watched people make roads. And they have to, well, you know, we have to take a lot of detours around El Paso. But, you know, when they make roads, you know, they got to flatten everything out. And then once they flatten everything out, then they have to soften, you know, they, they, they soften the ground itself. And there's a lot of dirt that goes into it, but there's a lot of water that goes into it as well. But eventually then they start putting down the surface to make it smooth. And, and what used to be, you know, hills and mountains and valleys now, you know, there's a straight path and it's, it's as safe as it can be. The rough places, plain. Plain, not, not like vanilla. Plain, like, like, like smooth. Now let me, let, let me ask you this question, because a lot of times we say, well, I've come to Jesus, but why am I going through so much? See, you have the fullness of Christ with you. 
<clears throat> so that whatever struggle you go through in life, whatever problem or situation or affliction that you have to deal with, remember this. He has given you a new heart. You got a new heart. The struggles are, are there, but you know what? He's with you too. He said, I'm going to be with you. I'll take you through the struggle. The road, if you'll stay with me, is going to be smooth. This is where faith comes in. This is where trust comes in. This is where we trust Him. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Do we really believe that? I hope you do. I'll never leave you. Lord, I'm going through struggles. I'm right here. Are you trusting me? We've got to finish. So in verses 24 through 28, now we see John's humility. Since he had no official title given to him by anyone influential in Judaism, uh, he was asked pointedly why he went around baptizing. And his answer, his answer is astounding. First of all, he uses the, those words, standeth and, and shoes latchet, to signify that the person of whom he spoke had a bodily form and was not a phantom. Remember that one of the, one of the great purposes of the Gospel of John is to let people know that Jesus truly took upon himself flesh. And the writings of John later in his, in his letters to the church would say, unless a person believes in the Father and the Son, and that the Son took upon himself flesh, then if, if they don't believe that, then they're Antichrist. So the very aspect of the incarnation continues on in the work of John the, the baptizer. So, but it, it's more than that here, because secondly, the... the the, fa- the phrase to loosen the latch, it was, it was a particularly servile position. And John was, I'm sure, had in mind this Talmudic rabbinical saying, every service which a slave performs for his master, a scholar should perform for his teacher, except loosing his sandal thong. Why? And why is it that the greatest prophet himself, John, felt unworthy to render Christ this humble service? The greatest prophet said, I'm not even worthy to unlatch his sandal thong. But you know, there, there's some people today, unconverted sinners that often presume to serve Christ according to their own will, and they fully expect to have their service honored and rewarded. But we as believers in Jesus Christ, we have to stoop. We have to be willing to stoop to the lowest level of servanthood to submit to our Messiah. And as I've asked the question before, how low can you go? If you want to go low, you have to compete with John the baptizer. That was his humility. Let's close out reading verses 29 through 34. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him. Now, I want to tell you, I want to say this in a nice voice, but I truly picture John screaming loud these words. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. I believe John shouted these words out when he saw Jesus. This is he of whom I said, after me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. This is the third time that this is mentioned in this chapter. Is that important? Is it important? Wake up, it's 1225. All right. I know it's that hour. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore, I am come baptizing with water. I, I knew him not. I mean, here's a, here's a guy who, you know, they're related, but they, they haven't seen each other. Certainly Jesus knew who John was, but John needed the Spirit of God to show him that this was Messiah. And John bare record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not. And we're going to come back to some of these verses the next time. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending, and remaining on him the same as he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. 
Referring, of course, to the baptism of Jesus. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Again, we'll come back to uh, exposit this a little bit more next time. But the, me- the message of the entirety, as we come to the table of communion now, the message of the entirety of the scriptures can be summed up in this title, the Lamb of God. I want to say that again. The message of the entirety of the scriptures can be summed up in this title, the Lamb of God. I want, I want to bring to your remembrance a question that was asked in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 22 to be more precise. Genesis 22 verse 7. A question asked by Isaac the son of Abraham when Abraham had taken his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah in obedience to the Lord who said, take your son up there and sacrifice him unto me. Isaac, a type of Jesus Christ, asked this question. Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Where is the lamb? That's the question. The answer is in all four Gospels, but is especially significant in this passage. Behold the Lamb of God. Here He is. This is what John is saying. Here is the Lamb of God. Pointing to Jesus Christ. Here is the Lamb. That answers that question in Genesis 22. Whatever other offices belong to Jesus, I mean, He is the first, foremost, the Lamb of God. He is first and foremost the Lamb for us. If He's not the Lamb of God, we're in trouble. We don't forget that He's certainly the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We could even say that Jesus is the Star of David, if you will. The true vine, the the wonderful counselor, the almighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. But for us, he will always be the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world because this lamb was placed on the altar of the cross in sacrifice on our behalf and in our place. He will always be for us the lamb of God. And when we come to this table of communion today, as we will hear in just a moment, what will we consider of Jesus when we hold the bread and the cup? Is he not the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world? What have you not laid down before the Lord up to this point? What will you lay down before you leave here today? Will you lay down your lives in thanksgiving and praise to the God who sent His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life? For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through Him might be saved. Are you saved? Do you know Jesus? Do you know him as the Lamb of God?